one documentary on News Talk to mark Brain Awareness Week 2022, taking place from March 14th to 20th, neuroscientist Dr. Sabina Brennan explores the migraine brain and talks to those affected in Imaginers. I think we met almost at the beginning. I presume you will probably be with me at the end. Whatever you are, you always know how to find me. And when you do, I tend to lose myself because of you. I remember when I was living on my own, my kind of um, test for myself to see whether I was fit to get into the car to drive to work was, can I sequence making a cup of tea? And if I can't actually sequence that, then I shouldn't be driving. I shouldn't get into the car and drive. I couldn't leave work because it would have been frowned upon. There wouldn't have been anybody there to cover my workload if I left. I would have carried a lot of guilt and responsibility for that. It just wasn't the done thing. You didn't go home sick. My name is Aaron Vallely, and I am a 30-year-old journalist. I have a particular interest in things like human rights, art, fashion, and music. I have suffered from migraine as long as I can remember. My name is Siobhan Condren. I manage an adult literacy service, and I teach yoga. I'm an avid hill walker. I love learning languages and I live with migraine. My name is Fiona. I love my dogs, diving and basking in the sun. And I have migraine. By sharing their experiences, migrainers Aaron, Siobhan and Fiona offer us a glimpse of life with this often debilitating condition. My name is Sabina Brennan. I'm a health psychologist and a neuroscientist. My specific interest is brain health and I am passionate about helping people to live well with neurological conditions, including migraine. Unfortunately, the word migraine has become synonymous with headache and is commonly used in everyday conversation to describe a bad headache. From a medical perspective, migraine has in the past been shrouded in mystery. But thanks to technological advances such as MRI scanners, we can now see inside the migraine brain. Despite this scientific progress and the fact that migraine is the most common neurological condition in the world, its symptoms are often misunderstood and its debilitating nature frequently underestimated. It's a very bad headache. Everyone gets them, it's just a really bad headache, I think. I thought a migraine was a headache in like the back of your head, the back area, and uh, you get it with a hangover. Oh, I think a migraine is a headache in your forehead. I think a migraine is like a, like a really like severe headache. I do get quite severe headaches sometimes. Just usually just like rest. It's a bad headache just here, in between the well above your eyes. When I'm dehydrated, I always get one. Yeah. Or like if I haven't had enough sleep. I'm Dr. Edward O'Sullivan. I'm clinical director of the Headache Migraine Clinic within the Department of Neurology in Cork University Hospital. I'm also a general practitioner in Bishop Sound in Cork and medical advisor to the Migraine Association of Ireland. 
migraine is first and foremost a neurological disorder affecting about 10 to 12 percent of the population it manifests itself uh, with disabling headache which is the most notorious symptom but it's also got a collection of other symptoms such as nausea intolerance to light sound and vomiting the headache itself is typically a one-sided headache but can be a generalized global headache in any part of the head and the most likely characteristic of the headache is that it's throbbing, pounding, disabling, worsened by movement, and patients will score this headache uh, very high, 8 to 9 out of 10. In addition to that, many patients also will have symptoms before the headache, which we call the aura symptoms, and these would be typically visual aura consisting of flashing lights, zigzag lines, blurred vision, which can last for 10 to 15 minutes, and others' aura symptoms then would be numbness or pins and needles and difficulty with speech. When you put all these symptoms together, that'll give you a clinical diagnosis of migraine based on the presentation of the symptoms and the interpretation of those symptoms by your doctor. Patients will need to experience a number of attacks before a clinical diagnosis of migraine will be made. I'm just coming out from migraine this morning, so I've I've got that hangover feeling. Um, so I, I thought I'd make a note. I've had a migraine for two days, so I really finally got a night's sleep last night. I suppose how a migraine affects my senses is obviously the effect uh, noise has on bearable things are amplified to uh, an extreme level. Any sound just kills me. My vision, lights affect me, they're extremely bright. I don't get auras, but I get a disassociation type of feeling um, where I almost feel I'm not connected. I'm not aware of, things don't feel real when a migraine attack is pending. When I'm in the throes of a migraine, I suppose like most people, I, I have to be in dark, I have to be in silence. It doesn't help the migraine, but it certainly doesn't aggravate it um, when there's no volume or lights to make it worse. As you can hear, when I come out of a migraine, I'm kind of not 100% with it for a while. It's almost like I have a hangover. I am almost can't articulate how I feel, as you can hear. I um, It's like I'm dopey. It's like I'm woozy. Yeah, it's actually very hard to work the day after a migraine attack because I'm definitely slow. I'm definitely not alert. My reactions aren't quick enough. It's hugely debilitating. And sometimes for me, the headache isn't the worst part. It's that kind of, I can't function. And if you have a deadline for something, or if you have to speak in front of people, and this happens to you, it's it's enormously embarrassing besides anything else. And you kind of don't want to keep saying, well, could, could I get an extension to that deadline or whatever? For me, it's that debilitating aspect of it. You know, I've had a lot of pain in my life with sciatica and pelvic stuff. So pain isn't the major issue for me. It's that inability to actually function as an adult. Brain fog is a definitely well-recognized and quite a common symptom in patients, particularly who suffer from chronic migraine, which is more than 15 headache days per month. And the understanding of that is that because the migraine attacks are so frequent, that in between migraine attacks, they never fully recover. 
And so by the time their next migraine attack occurs, they have ongoing symptoms of tiredness, fatigue, uh, below par feeling, this brain fog perception. And that's because they haven't fully recovered from the last migraine attack by the time the next migraine attack starts off. Unlike episodic migraine attacks, where, for, for example, if a patient gets one to two migraine attacks per month, they're completely well in between attacks and they feel that they're functioning very well and not having any symptoms. But in those patients for whom migraine becomes a progressive disorder and they get up to that kind of 15 or so headache days per month, they're aware that I'm recovering from my migraines, but as I recover, I'm still unwell and I never fully recovered and my next migraine attack is starting off. You steal time. You interrupt thought. You prevent the pleasure often chanced upon in daily life. You lie in darkness in a realm without sound and upon arrival here inflict an alien frequency so formidable I lose control of my senses. I almost feel at your servitude, master and slave. It almost feels like you're attempting to evict me from my own conscious mind. You don't scream or shout, in fairness, but you do disrupt, hovering close by. You don't use words, but you do steal them. You attack spoken language. You are anti-language. You prevent sleep, one of the very few protections against your assaults. Aaron raises an interesting point there about sleep. The stereotypical view of migraine is that a darkened room and sleep cure migraine. And yes, that can be the case. Certainly, the severity of multiple symptoms, including but not limited to headache, can necessitate lying down. And if light and sound sensitivity are present during a migraine attack, then a dark, quiet place can help. But the problem is that migraine may also prevent sleep, and indeed, too little, too much or disrupted sleep can all give rise to migraine. So migraine's relationship with sleep, just like the condition itself, is complex. Sleep and other lifestyle factors are major triggers for migraine and a lot of these are either psychological stressors or physiological stressors to the individual such as lack of sleep or oversleep or missed meals or overtiredness, uh, fatigue and of course the psychological stress that's just the challenge of a busy day or being overburdened with many tasks and a lot of these things will contribute to reaching the threshold for a migraine attack. So whilst they're triggers of migraine, does that mean that we could flip that and minimise migraine by addressing some of those lifestyle factors? Indeed, in the, in the management of migraine, we ask patients to keep headache diaries. And one of the most important things in diaries is to monitor your trigger factors, give general lifestyle advice, such as having a good breakfast in the morning, not missing meals, being good with your time management throughout the day, taking regular breaks, taking regular exercise, and having a good sleep hygiene in terms of getting to bed at a reasonable hour. And also when the weekends come, if you have a day off, not to oversleep either. 
A regular structure to your Wednesday is probably the best way and the most simplest way of managing your physiological and psychological stresses. The greater disruption to those routines, the greater the risk of reaching that threshold for a migraine attack. And often there's the constant of what we call weekend migraine. When they've had a busy week or a busy Friday, they feel fine, they're relaxed, they're at home, and then they wake up on a Saturday morning with a migraine attack. And that's typically what we call the weekend migraineur, and that's not uncommon. I have a diagnosis of chronic daily migraine, so by definition, I have headaches pretty much every day. But I must admit that some of my worst migraine attacks don't have particularly severe headaches, but the attacks themselves are utterly debilitating. I can literally do nothing but lie down. My head feels too heavy to hold up. My eyelids are so difficult to keep them open. I can't see properly. My vision is blurred or else it's distorted or both. Nausea is common for me too and so too is brain fog. I can't think and this malaise, this migraine malaise can last for days. So while migraine is considered synonymous with headache, a migraine attack doesn't always involve a headache. Obviously, the headache is the most talked about and the most disabling feature of migraine, but there are many patients who would experience attacks where the headaches would either be relatively mild or even absent, and their predominant symptoms then would be uh, what we would call maybe psychological symptoms of tiredness, fatigue, lacking in energy, change in mood, certainly a below-par feeling, and these symptoms then are often accompanied by this kind of vague sense of difficulty with concentration, intolerance to light, intolerance to sounds, which are specific migraine symptoms. And also we're aware of a concept that even between specific migraine attacks, uh, the migraine patient can often experience those other non-headache symptoms, which in some cases patients will fear that they're going to get a disabling headache along with it but doesn't always go on to develop into that kind of an attack. But there are many migraine symptoms that patients get in between their headaches as well, which have an impact on their lifestyle in the terms of their ability to concentrate, their ability to perform, their lack of sharpness in terms of their daily productivity and and activities. Migraine also, in in the context of the classification, has been well developed in recent years into episodic migraine, which is migraine attacks occurring, you know, up to 15 days per month and chronic migraine, which would be more than 15 headache days per month, of which half of them will be quite disabling. The average patient, of course, gets about two to four migraine attacks per month. Migraine comes in at number seven in the World Health Organization's top 10 of most debilitating diseases worldwide. Why do you think that is? There are very few conditions that will stop you from actually functioning to the point where you need to have to lie down in a quiet, dark room. You'll have to return home from work. It's not a mind game. You won't beat it psychologically in terms of the severity of the symptoms and the disabling nature of attacks are such that you can't function. And of course, it has a huge impact then on the personal level in terms of just experiencing those symptoms, but also it has a huge impact in terms of productivity, workplace environment, your family life, social occasions. So it extends into every area of your life, not just your own personal experience of the attack, but all those for whom you come in contact as well. And if you break that down and analyze it in that kind of detail, there's very few conditions that have had that degree of impact on yourself or on people who are close to you. So in that sense, in terms of quality of life, it is amongst the most disabling conditions that anybody can suffer from.
And for many migrants, they've been experiencing this since childhood. I suppose my earliest memories of migraine are usually associated with travelling in the car. So when I think about it, I think about that oppressive kind of heat that sort of drains you, and it's made worse by the poor ventilation. So my parents, basically, they had no time for complaints, and it would feel like the equivalent of a sustained assault. And long trips in the car as a child were like torture then. The car sickness thing, I had that as a child, and it is so difficult to explain how awful it really is. We were taken for a drive every Saturday. And by we, I mean there was seven of us in the family, five kids, two adults, piled into a car. You can imagine how stuffy that was. And I would always get sick, but I was perceived as a nuisance. <laughs> like, why do you always get sick when we go travelling in the car? Like, you know, why can't you be like the others? When you used to go to the shops back then, you get little brown paper bags for your things that you bought in the shops. And my mum used to just save those and I'd get into the car and just say, no, we're not stopping there and would hand me the bags and I would have to get sick into the bag. You know, they weren't going to stop for the inconvenience of me being sick. That's like my dad was the same, you know, this sort of thing like, oh, no, no, we're moving the car. Like almost getting punished for this. You know what I mean? It's like you're being punished for being unwell. There's a strong relationship between travel sickness and migraine and those who suffer from travel sickness in childhood are at risk of going on to develop migraine later on in life or migraine in childhood for that matter. When you take again a detailed history from migraine patients, many of them would have had travel sickness in childhood, which I think itself is probably what we would call a migraine equivalent is migraine symptoms without a headache. Yeah, and that's interesting. It's funny. Yesterday we went for a drive with my son, who's 30, you know, he's a grown up, but they came in our car and my son sat in the back seat. And I'd say we were only yeah, maybe a kilometer down the road. And he said, oh, my God, I've travel sickness. That particular son of mine was diagnosed with severe migraine at 14 and his migraine is pretty managed, but he drives his own car now. And I just thought it was funny because he sat in the back. <laughs> It is interesting, and that's well known as well, is those who suffer from travel sickness are more likely to experience those symptoms if they're in the back seat of the car rather than sitting in the front seat. I remember my first Holy Communion was totally derailed due to a strong bout of nausea brought on by migraine. So I ended up getting sick in my grandmother's house and the whole day turned sour. I think that it was around this point that you begin to realise, in a sense, that you're unlike other children and you begin to assume what one might call a kind of uh, migraine identity. So basically, this is the understanding that this is just the way things are for someone like myself and for others whom happen to be similarly afflicted. Then I suppose later as a teenager, things got much worse, uh, especially since lessons in secondary school were based in prefabs, which were these awful buildings, torture chambers, um, etc. So you had this lethal combination of the glaring sun through the windows, the constant chaotic noise all over the place, uh, wrapped up nicely in some heat congestion. Um, it can be all sorts of things, but it seems to be triggered mostly by stress by what I can see. Often when people have kind of big changes in their lives or like particularly stressed they come on a lot easier. 
From the people I know and from what I've experienced people go through it, they seem to be so all-consuming and so intense that it's quite hard to say you just have a headache because the distinction between the two is pretty big. When I was nine, the doctor told my mum that I had headaches because I was trying too hard. I'm not quite sure whether there was anything that came after that, like fill in the dots, trying too hard to please, trying too hard to be good, trying too hard to be the best, whatever. I actually don't know whether anything came after the trying too hard bit, but I suspect that he was suggesting that my migraines or my headaches, he didn't call them migraines, were stress induced. Now, when I offer brain health advice to migraineurs, in addition to adopting good sleep hygiene, I highlight the importance of managing their response to life stressors. Any form of stress is probably the most common trigger for migraine. And when we talk about stress, uh, I'm not actually referring to the ability to cope. It's really about the bombardment and daily activities that you can have. For example, you could be very successful and being very productive and very busy throughout your day. But the consequence of that stress is that when you relax after that period of stress, in comes a migraine. So you may have been coping quite well and not psychologically distressed in the context of the ability to cope, but it's just the challenges of and the demands on your time and effort and concentration. And that's, of course, why giving advice around the management of stress at every level is such an important facet in terms of general advice and migraine management. I think you raise an important point about the distinctions between stress. I often say it's confusing because we use the word stress to describe the physiological response, the psychological response, and also the thing that is stressing us. And it's not very helpful. So yes, from a psychologist's perspective, psychological stress is about your perception of your ability to cope with whatever the stressor or threat is that you're faced with. Now, it is relevant whether that stressor is real or imagined because the physiological stress response is kicked off anyway. It's feeding into an adrenergic and noradrenergic response within brainstem functionality. And I think it's somewhere along that process, the threshold is reached. When you say adrenergic and noradrenergic, you're talking about adrenaline and noradrenaline. Both of those play a role in the stress response. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess it's uh, when you get a terrible headache fairly quickly, which could lead to nausea. And all I know is that people need to lie down in a dark room and uh, rest, really. Quite a lot of uh, female friends, actually, and uh, it's probably hormonally induced, I'd say, you know, as far as I know. Despite seeing a doctor at such a young age, I didn't receive a migraine diagnosis until I was an adult after experiencing uh, particularly scary visual disturbances while pregnant. My vision literally divided into four segments and it was like viewing the world through a kaleidoscope. And that particular first episode lasted about 25 minutes. It was really genuinely very scary. And I happened to have an appointment with my gynaecologist that day, a checkup, and she sent me on to a consultant. And the consultant told me that what I had experienced earlier that day was an ocular migraine. Interestingly, pregnancy itself in general can protect women from migraine. And the reason it can protect women from migraine is because during pregnancy, you have sustained high levels of estrogens throughout the pregnancy. And many patients who suffer from migraine will go into remission during their pregnancy, particularly once you go beyond the first 14 weeks. Paradoxically, of course, there are some women 
who experienced their first migraine attacks during pregnancy. And we do see that. And as you've outlined, visual aura symptoms do occur for some patients, which is these kind of areas of loss of vision or disturbed vision or distorted visual images lasting for anything up to an hour, but on average 20 minutes. And they can be quite distressing, obviously, if you're experiencing those for the first time because there are stroke-like symptoms and they cause a lot of fear for the individual. Migraine affects women three times more commonly than men. And in women, it often starts in their early teens when their periods start. And in the early teens and from there on, that's when the prevalence of migraine becomes far more common in women. Many women then, of course, are vulnerable to attacks uh, in or around the time of their menstrual cycle, usually on days one to two prior to their period and up to two to three days into their period. And of course, we know at those times that there are a lot of hormonal changes going on in the cycle, particularly your estrogen levels are dropping and there's a precipitous drop in the estrogen levels just prior to the period. And that's the triggering factor in terms of reaching your threshold for attacks that occur exclusively around the menstrual cycle. There's also a second time in the menstrual cycle around the time of ovulation where many women will also be vulnerable to attacks. And then finally, around the time of the menopause, or particularly in postmenopausal women, migraine often goes into remission. So it's a condition that peters out as you get older, generally. However, there are contradictions to every rule. And for some women, again, migraine can be a very troublesome condition in around the time of the menopause. Aside from hormonal fluctuations and stress, what other factors trigger migraine? The non-headache symptoms of migraine are very fascinating symptoms to study, such as the intolerance to strong odors, which is what we call osmophobia, or the intolerance to light, or the intolerance to sound. What those symptoms reflect really is the hypersensitivity of the migraine brain. So actually, Siobhan, the thing that I wanted to talk to you about was because it resonated with me and that is smells <laughs> like your eyes are widening. I really wish people could see that. I actually was at a migraine talk that you gave and you said, and, and my ears pricked up when you said this, you said, if I could do anything, I would ban perfume. And I thought, yes, I am 100% with you because it is an instant migraine for me. And also, if I already have one, the pain just amplifies hugely when I have it. And one thing I find very bizarre is every pharmacy you go into is really smelly. I would have said in the past sunlight was the worst trigger for me, but actually it isn't. I went into work recently and um, a colleague of mine was there and she was wearing very mild perfume, but I hadn't had a migraine in about three weeks and I just got one straight away. I, I find that fascinating as well. Smells are instant migraine for me, like instant I know that the brain processes information at breakneck speed. It's kind of beyond our understanding how fast the brain works, but instant, like just nothing I can do about it and really quite severe. So some migraines can come on very gradually and, you know, you might be able to stem them. But when it's instigated by a smell, it's sudden, it's all consuming. Like I literally have to leave the room, shut the door. There's a lot of research into the non-headache symptoms and giving us greater insight into what's going on in the brain because these are normal stimuli which are perceived to be very noxious to individuals when they're suffering from migraine and can be very disabling in their own right as well. How I kind of think about migraine, the way I picture it in my head is that you're going along and you're kind of at a normal level of stimulation from smells and light and whatever. And then something clicks and you're not anymore and you're hyper stimulated by noise and things. 
then my brain feels like it then it gets hyperstimulated, it gets the pain and it shuts down and it says, I'm not doing anything, I'm not doing anything at all. It's a very human thing to come up with narrative to make sense of our experiences. What do you think of Siobhan's theory about her migraine brain? All sensory information is processed in the brain in, in certain areas and there's areas of the brain that we call the hippocampus and all of these areas are interconnected and we can see from MRI scanning and neuroimaging that these areas of the brain look enlarged and more active in the migraine patient uh, for whatever reason that is but it does reflect the symptoms that patients experience and it's reflected now in the modern neuroimaging that we can do and it gives us much greater insight into what's going on during a migraine, not just in terms of the headache, but also in terms of the associated symptoms. Do we know how or why smells trigger migraine and why it is such an instantaneous headache that occurs? I think as strong odours, intolerance to strong odours, it's an intolerance to a sensory modality, whether it's light or smells or sound. In the same way as well also, another sensory symptom is this thing that we call cutaneous allodynia. So that if a patient has a headache and if they put their hand up to their head or they comb their hair, it in itself becomes a very noxious stimulus and painful in itself. It hurts, even though in between migraine attacks, it's not a painful stimulus at all. And of course, it's not actually a painful stimulus. It's actually the perception of pain from what we would call a non-noxious stimulus. And that's again, a hypersensitivity response in terms of to light touch or just comb your hair. It's just that sometimes when we don't understand something that doesn't undermine the condition, it just means that we have a lot more to learn about it. And do we actually know what happens in the migraine brain during an attack? During migraine attacks, we know that the pain-sensitive structures are the coverings of the brain and the large blood vessels inside the head. And the pain-sensitive pathways is a specific nerve called the trigeminal nerve. And during a migraine attack, we know that these molecules, CGRP, are released, and others, but particularly CGRP, are released from the peripheral end of these nerves which uh, supply or innervate the coverings of the brain and the blood vessels and when these chemicals cgrp are released that has a local effect on the blood vessels and the covering of the veins thereby causing the blood vessels to expand and become dilated and that in itself then triggers a painful pathway in the trigeminal nerve and that's transmitted back in then along the nerve and into the brain stem and on up to the higher centers where we perceive a headache and also the other associated symptoms. Patients who experience migraine attacks will often suffer in silence and try to struggle through as best they can until they get home and again that needs to be managed better because it is important to treat migraine attacks effectively and not kind of keep it as a secret and suffer in silence because their fear of being discriminated against in terms of the workplace. Personally, I kept my migraine secret in my place of work. Actually, no one other than my husband and sons were aware that I had migraine. In fact, I've only spoken out about it recently in the context of my brain health work and from an advocacy perspective, you know, exploring ways that employers could help to support people with migraine. In contrast, Siobhan, you have spoken openly about your migraine at work. How did that go? Well, in my workplace, it's kind of been mixed The team I'm with at the moment, they're brilliant. They just say, look, sorry, didn't realize, won't do it again. 
possibly influenced by the fact that I'm their boss. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, so that kind of helps. But actually, in the past, I've had people say, well, no, it's a very mild perfume. You couldn't possibly be doing that. I'm not going to stop wearing my perfume. Right. And um, I'm saying, OK, well, don't, but don't come into my office. <laughs> you know, if you want to wear it, but could you stand at the door when you talk? And they've kind of taken umbrage at it, but I just can't afford to keep getting triggered in work. You know, I have a very busy job. I, I need to be focused. So some people have not taken to it very well at all. They've taken it as a personal insult that you don't like the perfume. And what do you think they think about you saying it? That they think it's an aggressive thing to say. Sometimes somebody actually said that to me. That's an aggressive thing to say. <laughs> I think at times people think that there is a kind of assumption, I think, that one is being a hypochondriac. But the reactions I've gotten have been kind of a little bit of, yeah, really, or can't be that bad. If I'm exposed to it for a brief time, I might get away without getting migraine if I don't have other triggers. But if I happen to have not had a good night's sleep, or if I happen to have a period, or if it's coming up to lunchtime and I'm hungry, then it's instant. So people think, well, it didn't trigger you yesterday. I think people don't get the complexity of it. Yeah, I've lived through, uh, I've had lots of pain issues. I'm absolutely not a malingerer. I've worked through all of them and I continue to work. Rather, what I've tended to do is sort of narrow my social life. There are bits that I enjoy, which is not a good idea as well, because that probably feeds into it. I think there's a disbelief or a misunderstanding that this is something very real going on in your brain. I've just come out of actually a couple of weeks of bad migraine and I just could not function. So I just couldn't think is what I will say. Yes, I was functioning and going through the motions, but like that, that just sense of failure, lack of productivity, inability to find my flow just adds to it all. And Often I've learned that I just have to stop and either rest or do something else. When you have a deadline, you kind of can't do that and you try to persist. But like the difference now in the last day or two, I've come out of it. And like my husband just said to me, he came home from work and he just said to me, oh, you're smiling. It's so lovely to see you smiling again. And I'm passionate about smiling. But I was just so unwell for several days that it was literally just there's the pain there's the inability to function but there's the frustration on top of that and the sense of failure on top of that it's very hard to explain but it's wonderful then when you come out the other side and then actually this week I've been writing and then kind of go you see it's easy (laughs) like this is easy and then I'm thinking why couldn't I do this last week but my brain didn't have the capacity to do it last week because it was dealing with the pain Migraine has a huge impact on the individuals in the workplace. It affects their ability to sometimes even to seek promotion because if they lose time from work, the patient is not accommodated frequently during a migraine attacks. But it needs a little bit of understanding that migraine is something that is not a mind game. It has a huge impact on the personal individually, and it needs to be managed and treated properly in the workplace. And lots of big employers are probably better at it than small employers because the work environment have often have a lot of health resources and they can be given the opportunity to treat their attacks and lie down. But it is important that it's recognized in terms of the impact and the time loss from work potentially. I was really struggling. I would suffer quite regularly with migraines and the nature of my work would be very stressful. Long hours and at the time 
very little empathy. When I first met you, I was actually giving a talk for the Migraine Association of Ireland about how to manage migraine in the workplace. Most of my talk was talking about tips for the individual living with migraine about how they can manage it and very practical things about what you can do with your computer screen and taking breaks and that sort of thing but also we touched on a couple of things about how you might talk to employers about your migraine and colleagues and also things that employers could do to accommodate people living with this neurological condition if you don't mind me saying i mean you actually got quite upset when we yes. when we spoke to you i was so stressed about it it was affecting me at home it was affecting my family life i felt having a migraine almost was a disability in work it was definitely frowned upon there were no accommodations being made it had been going on for years and i was just in this cycle of going to occupational health, going to EAP. They would make recommendations. I found them very supportive. My local management would then decide to dismiss the recommendations. So you'd go to occupational health and they would make recommendations around reasonable accommodations. They would, yes. And then they would send those accommodations to your manager. Yeah, I worked in the public sector, so there there would be very clear protocols. I suppose on a local level then I was being told that they're only recommendations and I can choose to ignore them. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And he or she did ignore them? Absolutely. 100%. And can you give me some indication around what those recommendations were? They would have been things like reasonable accommodation for breaks. Okay. Um, So to allow you to have some breaks during the day that can help everybody immensely with concentration. (laughs) (laughs) aside from having migraine absolutely unfortunately there wasn't time to facilitate breaks during my day I would work long hours I would work 12 hour days oh my goodness um at times I would work very anti-social hours which was definitely contributing to my migraines as well would that have interfered with your sleep yeah my sleep and my eating patterns okay I have always been under the care of a consultant so There was never any issue with the validity of the illness. But yeah, no accommodations were made or or were offered. If I felt a migraine coming on, I just physically couldn't leave work. I worried a lot in work because I would have been going out doing different parts of my work while driving. I would be terrified driving with a migraine. My concentration would be gone, my senses, my eyesight. Um, so I actually worried I was going to a crash at times. It went on for a number of years. They're not very nice at all. Um, oftentimes it leads to um, a blur of my vision due to the pain. Many a time have I uh, experienced a migraine in work and I've had to take a breather and a break for a certain period of time. No, I've only recently transferred a week ago and within the space of that week, the difference I have seen in the support that's been offered to me and how occupational health is utilised in the new environment. Only today I had a conversation with one of my new managers about the role of occupational health and about the supports the organisation should be providing to staff and 
it was like I was working in a different country. And can you tell me how it feels now in terms of, because when you described earlier, you were talking about this constant feeling of stress and guilt and self-judgment. I know you're only a week in your new job, but how do you feel now in those terms? I just feel like a weight has been lifted off my chest. I really do. As I said, I would go to my new manager in a heartbeat and say, these are the issues I'm having. This is the support I need. As I said, they've already offered to make any accommodation they can that will help me literally a week down the road. And if recommendations are made as a manager, my new manager was saying they're implemented. I am not the medical professional. I have no qualifications to query or question any recommendations made. And it was just, it was lovely to hear. I can't believe the difference in my stress levels. I can't believe the difference in just my general anxiety. And I do believe whether it's the severity or how often I have migraines, I actually do believe it is going to be dramatically impacted because of the reduction in stress. There's a big difference between a migraine and a hangover. A hangover, you're just hung over from alcohol. A migraine's really painful, where you really can't stand up out of bed and it really hurts. So I wouldn't care if someone rang in sick from a migraine, because that really is a reason to. But a hangover, no way. You shouldn't. <laughs> Definitely with a hangover, you'd probably look better when you say you suffer from a migraine or whatever else. It's like a tummy bug. You know, we've all done it, I think. I have a tummy bug. I can't go out if you don't want to go out. As a former employer, just because you have migraine doesn't mean to say you're going to fake it. That can happen to anyone. I think um, most employers are understanding, and uh, that, that's my experience. Is there any message that you'd like to give to other people who either are in the same position as you or to employers? I'll be honest, I tolerated it for too long. Mm. I, I should have escalated it. I really should have. But I think I was fearful of it being seen as a liability but I should have just grabbed the bull by the horns and escalated the issue. When you say fearful of it being a liability, the I migraine? I mean, maybe a migraine sufferer. That I had a condition that would at times affect my performance, affect my attendance. I would be very mindful of taking time off. I mean, if I had to take a single day off, I would always have got a doctor's cert just because I felt I had to prove there was a legitimate illness there. I don't feel migraine is seen as a legitimate illness. It hasn't been my experience, certainly not in the workplace, it wasn't. I think for employers, I know that people can overuse words like migraine when they may have a headache or a hangover and that doesn't do the rest of us any favours. But I think employers need to know how severe migraines can be how much of an impact they can have on your life, that they're not a choice, and that anybody I know who suffers from them is doing their absolute best to overcome them. Your conversation illustrates very nicely that if you have reasonable accommodations in place and supportive management, you can be far more productive. Whereas I am sure the stress, anxiety, the migraines, everything else that came on top of it actually probably interfered with your performance far more than your migraine would if you have reasonable accommodations. 100%. 100%.
I remember going to a neurologist and I remember him sort of saying to me, when was the last time you remember feeling fully well, healthy, no headache? And I mean, I would have said, gosh, I don't know, <laughs> 20, 30 years ago. It's a concept now that when we talk about wellness between attacks, we now use the term, when's the last time you had a crystal clear day? from your headache. One of the goals is, you know, apart from the reduction in the frequency and severity of attacks, we do ask things like, have you had any crystal clear days? And when you ask a patient that kind of question, they know exactly what you're asking them because if they experience in them, they'll tell you straight up, yeah, I had a, you know, I've never felt like this before uh, for years, and a crystal clear day. That's so true. And I think being one of those people who would be chronic, I would have rare crystal clear days. And I think that's a good way to explain the debilitating nature of migraine, because I think that most people would say you have occasional migraine days, whereas actually for me, it's the reverse. I have occasional crystal clear days. If you rearrange the letters of migraine, you can make the word imaginer which, according to the dictionary, means a person who imagines. Siobhan sometimes gets the sense that people feel she is a hypochondriac. I have definitely got the vibe, even from those who love and care about me, that I'm overacting, imagining things or just being hypersensitive. But as Dr. Edward O'Sullivan explained, the migraine brain is hypersensitive, so ordinary everyday light, smells and sounds are perceived by the migraine brain as noxious, harmful, painful. Fiona said it doesn't help when non-migraineurs use the diagnosis of migraine to refer to a hangover, a headache, or use it as an excuse for a sick day. This appropriation of migraine highlights the misunderstanding that persists that migraine is just a headache. Imagine if people appropriated other neurological conditions like epilepsy or multiple sclerosis to account for a hangover or to pull a sickie. Our pain is real and debilitating. We're not imaginers. We are migraineurs. I would kill you if I had the chance. Though for now, I must endure you. Your worst crime must be the interruption of key moments that deserve to be experienced fully. You are like the creature who awakens from a slumber to ransack the village on occasion. The village is always left to rebuild. There can be no reparations for the time you have taken or the sense of otherness your condition imposes. I have learned to endure to recognize you and to keep you at bay. I will rejoice the day your reign ends. Yours, regrettably, Aaron. Imaginers was produced by Sabina Brennan with assistance from Angela Mazzetti. This documentary on migraine, edited by Emily Burke, was kindly supported by Novartis.